Welcome to the Radical Christ episode 28. We are in the failure stage of Jesus's life. It's Good Friday. His life is being destroyed. But I've got a recipe for Good Friday. It's called Roast Leg of Scapegoat. Don't go away. All through the series, we have been saying that Jesus is the map of every human journey. What he did not assume, says the church fathers, he could not have saved. And so he became completely human, completely us, including experiencing failure at a profound level. This was not what he had in mind. And Jesus did not come to earth to die. He came to earth to love. Our rejection of that love is the reason for the failure and also the opportunity for redemption. So let's go to the roast leg story to begin with. And I love pourquoi stories. Pourquoi is French for why. And pourquoi stories are about why certain things happen. That's the stories we tell each other. And the most famous one probably around at the moment is the story of the mother who every time she roasts a leg of lamb cuts off the bottom of the joint before putting it in the roasting pan. And when her daughter asks her, pourquoi mom, why do you always cut the joint off the bottom of the leg of lamb. The mother answers, Granny always did that. So the daughter has an opportunity to ask the Granny, Pourquoi did you always cut the bottom of the leg of lamb? And Granny says, Well, you see, my dear, I had a very small roasting pan and I had to cut the leg of lamb to size. But of course, that is a tradition that is carried on and on in the family. That's a pourquoi story. They're not all as light as that. Some of them are um, very profound and it's the way that we pass on our religious and our cultural ideas and our habits and our rituals and also our biases. So that's what a pourquoi story is. The crucifixion of Jesus has got a lot of layers of pourquoi. Why, why, why? Uh, it's a bit like the f- toddler's favorite question, where, um, or the preschooler's favorite question. Why? And then the parent answers, and then the child goes, why? And then the parent has to say more, and then why? That's how we learn. And as we contemplate the crucifixion, I'm going to invite us to do some reverse engineering. Now, reverse engineering is taking the the finished product, disassembling it, and then engineering backwards so that we can rebuild the object that we have deconstructed. And so by asking a series of pourquois of the crucifixion story and some reverse engineering, we're going to hopefully come to the core of what was going on on that first Good Friday.
So the first pourquoi is the church struggling by the, with the fact that Jesus dies by crucifixion. Jesus, this man of peace, this man of love, this man who comes to say to everybody that we have a loving Heavenly Father who cares for us and who wants everybody to be in community together, gets killed in the most vicious way by the religious establishment and by the Romans in, in a way that the Romans used to crucify criminals. And the church tries to make sense of this terrible end, this abject failure of the prophet's life. And the only move that the church can make at that stage to deal with this trauma, as we all try to make stories about why traumas happen, the first why that the church says to itself, the first why move, the first pourquoi, is to relate it back to what's happening in the temple. Now the temple, as we have seen, was the place where animal sacrifice was the forgiveness ritual of the time. People would come, make sacrifices in the temple at Passover, and through that atonement would be made for their sins and then that would be also be celebrated in the Day of Atonement um, with the scapegoat mechanism. So the first answer, the, the obvious answer that we've all grown up with is that Jesus dies because he is the sacrifice that God demands. But this creates a problem. Um, there's got to be more. What a, what a terrible image of God. I, I'm not sure I want to be anywhere near a God that who will kill his own son because he wants a sacrifice. Come on. There has to be more to it than that. And there are two more pourquois that we have to ask. So the first move the church does is Jesus is the sacrifice like the lamb that is led to the slaughter in the temple. Jesus is the lamb God demands. The next pourquois is quite obvious. And just like the preschooler, we say, why? And the church says animal sacrifice. That's Jesus is the sacrifice. And like the preschooler, we go, why? Why animal sacrifice? Well, the answer is quite simple. That animal sacrifice in the history of humanity substituted for human sacrifice. Before animal sacrifice, we sacrificed humans. We killed babies. We sacrificed vestal virgins. We, in, in the history of humanity, human sacrifice gets replaced by animal sacrifice. And that's a good deal for human, bad deal for the animals. But this is captured in another Porqua story, which is in Scripture in the Old Testament. Remember the story where Abraham goes up the mountain and he wants to sacrifice his son Isaac? And God jumps in and says, no, 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 you don't have to sacrifice your son. Look, there in the bush is a ram, a goat. You sacrifice that instead. And so there's the next layer of Porqua's story is explaining the transition in Abraham and Isaac from human sacrifice to animal sacrifice. And you know what the next Porqua is going to be. Why human sacrifice? 
Why, why do we have to make sacrifice at all? And it's here that we are now going further back than the origin of the Christian scriptures and the Jewish scriptures and, and the Islamic scriptures. We're back behind the creation story in what is called, and what the study subject is called paleo first, paleoanthropology. And paleoanthropology studies very, very early, early human stories, human myths. Remember, a myth is a true story that probably never happened, but all myths at some level are pourquoi stories that explain why things are the way they are. And it is in the study of paleoanthropology, way back before the scriptures were even conceived of, in the earliest, earliest human stories, we have what René Girard, a student and a professor of paleoanthropology, has discovered and called the scapegoating mechanism. The scapegoating mechanism works like this. When we began to live together, as humans and we found people who just didn't fit in, people who made things difficult, people who questioned the status quo in the same way that Jesus questioned the whole status quo in his time. It was easiest to scapegoat those people, to make them the problem, to project all our darkness onto them, to demonize them and then of course you could kill them. And then you'd feel better because you dealt with the problem. So individuals and groups have always in throughout history been scapegoated during times of stress. This is very important to remember. When the system is under stress, you scapegoat your problems onto a perceived person or enemy or group of people. And then when you punish them or you kill and destroy them, then you feel better. In the Middle Ages, medieval Jews were blamed for the bubonic plague and the anti-Semitism arises very strongly during the plague where the Jews are blamed for the, all the deaths that are happening in Europe. More recently, just to show that we haven't really evolved much from those days, we blamed, how many of us blamed the Chinese for COVID-19? There's the scapegoat mechanism. Blame the Chinese. This terrible thing called COVID-19, blame it on, this, on the Chinese, and then we can hate them, scapegoat them, and then we feel better. Or at least we explain why COVID-19 has happened. In, in a real interesting circling around irony, right now the Christian church itself is being scapegoated for all the troubles in the world. Um, the Christian church, if you read widely, you will see the Christian church is blamed for pedophilia, for colonization, for everything that's wrong in the world, blame the church. It's the scapegoating mechanism. We have to do it to make ourselves feel better. That's just the way humans roll. But what Gerard also discovers is there's an anomaly in our mental processing during the scapegoating mechanism. So it's one thing to project all your stress onto this maverick group that doesn't fit in, 
who you demonize and then destroy. But when you've done that and you've scapegoated somebody and you've destroyed them or the group of people, there's in our human DNA a residue of remorse that lingers towards those who we have destroyed. Like, what did we do that for? Why did we? We're feeling better, but we're feeling guilty. We killed these people, and, and there's their families, and, and, and they took the, we took the stress out of the system, but, but what do we do with our responsibility? And what Sherrod discovered is that at that point, you take the people and you turn them into gods. So we don't know the origins of this, but there's the Oedipus story. Now, Oedipus was a terrible person who has sexual relationship with his mother, then kills both his parents. And he is destroyed. Now, that possibly happened. There was possibly some event or a series of events where people living together realized you couldn't have incestual relationships. That just it was a taboo that was going to destroy society. And so people like Oedipus were killed. But then in this residual remorse, what happens is they think about Oedipus and say, you know, by killing Oedipus, we actually saved our community. We, we things got better. We, we stopped, we created a taboo and, and we protected ourselves from incest. And so the Greeks then take Oedipus and they make him a god. And many of the Greek gods were rebels who were scapegoated and destroyed but then eventually in this remorse kind of move were then elevated to the level of gods and elevated to divine status. I hope you're following this line of argument. We scapegoat people, we destroy them. Then we realize that in the scapegoating we have removed the stress out of our system and then we elevate them to the level of deity and divinity and worship them because they have redeemed us from the thing that was destroying us. We scapegoat our suspicious people. We scapegoat those who just won't fit in, those who ask the difficult questions, the people like Jesus, who rock the boat. We scapegoat them and then having killed and destroyed them in our remorse, we realize that they actually saved us and then we deify them and make them gods. Now, what Girard discovers, and through the study, Girard is an atheist, and when he comes to study Jesus in the sequence of scapegoating histories from paleoanthropology right up to the time of Jesus, when he really studies the Jesus scapegoating story, it so impacts him that he becomes a devout Catholic and dies. He died some years ago. He dies as a devout devout Christian, a Roman Catholic. But, but because he realizes that in Jesus, this whole story has been turned around. Jesus has not done anything wrong. He's not an Oedipus. He's not a narcissist. He's not a fury. He's not one of a hermaphrodite. All those Greek gods who, who typified some taboo in human society were killed and then deified. Gerard realizes that Jesus never does anything wrong. Jesus hasn't broken any taboos. Jesus has been pure. Jesus has been love. Jesus has only been invited people into community, not out of community, not destroying community. 
But the system is so set by Jesus' day that he is scapegoated by the very religious system that should have recognized him. And in that moment, Gerard realizes that what Jesus does is he lifts the scapegoating mechanism from an unconscious process that we hadn't thought about. We just did it reflective, reflexively, just instinctively when there was trouble. We killed people, scapegoated them, blamed them. The Jews are responsible, the Chinese are responsible, whatever. Just destroy them. It was an instinctive behavior, animal behavior. In Jesus, it becomes a conscious thing, and Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, but I do. And I'm making them conscious of what I do. You see, preachers on Good Friday will proclaim that God killed Jesus. This, this God who I really don't want anything to do with, if this is the God that they describe, takes his son, throws him under the bus. But if it's true that God killed Jesus and not us who killed Jesus, not humanity that killed Jesus, then we've just been exonerated from our collective culpability in the greatest scapegoating crime ever committed. God didn't kill Jesus. Humans killed Jesus. Humans, not God, kill and destroy those who challenge and threaten us. And do not believe any religion that scapegoats other groups and says, go and kill them. Whether that group is a member of a certain race, whether that group is a person, a group of people of a certain sexual orientation, there will always be scapegoats readily available and religions will point to those groups and say, kill them or reject them or throw them out. Moments like that, when it's so tempting to scapegoat someone else who's different from us because of gender or sexual orientation or race or culture or even creed, we need to remember that Jesus came to break the scapegoating mechanism to make us conscious of what we're doing. You see, Jesus broke no taboos. He taught only an inclusive path of love, and yet we killed him for it because we were so threatened by his invitation to become truly the people that he knew we could become without prejudice, without judgment, without little groups fighting other groups. That is why Jesus was killed and uses this abject failure of his life on Good Friday, transforms it to the way of redeeming us. But it's not the shedding of sacrificial blood. It's bringing us to a higher level of consciousness where we stop scapegoating because we know just how destructive that can be. Why in God's name do we still continue scapegoating is the question and that's why my invitation to us today on Good Friday is just to stop what we do so instinctively in blaming others for our insecurities for our stresses in God's name let's stop blaming and shaming let us admit that in moments of stress we all become afraid 
and are capable of doing terrible, terrible things. The worst of which was to kill the innocent, innocent Jesus of Nazareth and in that moment to be forgiven by the victim in an invitation to transcend to a higher level of consciousness who we really could be. So, would you like to join me in the roast leg of scapegoat? Because we don't have to sacrifice animals. We don't have to spill blood. We don't have to kill and judge and destroy in the name of any God. We really just have to listen more closely to what Jesus is trying to say and follow him and love as he loved and even offer ourselves sacrificially for the healing of others. Thank you very much for joining me on this dark day and if you are going through any crucifixion of your own, maybe this helps just understand because there are times when in your life and mine when we are scapegoated uh, because our lives make other people around us disturbed. Have a wonderful, wonderful Easter and thank you once again for your interest in the series. Take care.